Jacob. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, buckle up, put your seatbelts on. We're going on a journey tonight and a journey that is going to be fascinating. I'm just going to share this on two other social media platforms. We're going to begin on page 530, 531 in the, uh, in the uh, Miller um, Life Chumash, which we use every week. And as soon as I have this shared, we will rock and roll. We are in the Torah portion of Kisisa, known primarily for the sin of the golden calf, one of the great moments in Jewish history. And I say that sarcastically. Um, let me here to do. Make sure your phones are off and your heads are focused. Good evening, John. Good evening, Jane. Good evening, Yaakov and Ruth. One more share, and then I got you guys, and we're good to go. Good evening, Karen, Kayla Gittel. Look at that. We got a crowd tonight. Unbelievable. Okay. Yeah, good evening, Penny. All our friends from around the world that watch the class. Okay. So what I share with you tonight, let me just say it up front, is a combination of talks from the Rebbe that he shared in the Parsha, this week's Torah portion, Kisisa, in the winter of 1971, also on Shavuos, the holiday of Shavuos in 1964, and the Torah portion of Shemos, 1976. So it's a combination of three talks that was later brought together into one essay that was edited by the Rebbe and printed in volume 16 of the Rebbe's edited talks this one is in Yiddish, and it's a very lengthy talk. And as I said earlier, this week around the world, tens of thousands of Jews are studying this particular essay because it is part of Project Lakute Sichos, which is the project that studies the Rebbe's edited talks. And I was asked to share this particular talk because for, for, for people that are uninitiated or don't read Yiddish, it can be a very, very challenging topic. So what I'm doing tonight is something I don't think I've ever done before, I'm going to share with you a bunch of pieces of information. They are going to seem unrelated, but I want to make sure you understand each particular piece of information, and then we're going to combine them, and you'll see how they're all really interconnected. So in the Torah portion of Kisiza, we talk about the sin of the golden calf. God gives the Torah at Sinai. After Sinai, he goes up to the mountain to go get the details of the Torah. He comes down 40 days later. The Jews had miscalculated it by a day comes down the mountain, and the Jews are sinning with the golden calf. They're Not only are they sinning with the actual calf, which is idolatry, but they committed adultery. There was a lot of frivolity going on. There was a lot of, uh, there was sort of like a, um, a uh, you know, a group, uh, group immorality going on, sort of a, a, an inappropriate orgy going on. In addition, there was murder because they murdered uh, they murdered um, one of Moses' relatives because he defended Moses against the idolatrous behavior of the sin of the golden calf. So the whole situation was totally out of control. Moses takes the tablets, he breaks the tablets, and then he comes and deals with the Jewish people. And there's a lot of back and forth. It's a long Torah portion with God and Moses and Moses and God, and God wants to annihilate all the Jews. And, and, and Moses defends the Jews, and eventually there's forgiveness, but there's also death for those that were, remember, most of the Jews were not directly involved in the sin of the golden calf. Only a fraction of the Jews actually served the golden calf, but many of them stood at the side and didn't do anything about it. Let me just let some people in here. And so it was a very complex time for Moses as a leader, 
as the guy who taught the Torah and for the Jewish people who are supposed to be the recipients of this incredible thing and where they fit in. So now let me, let's look at page 531 in the verse. This is going to be information bit number one. It says in verse seven, God said sternly to Moses, go down for your people that you have brought up from the land of Egypt have become corrupt. They have rapidly abandoned the way which I commanded them. They made themselves a molten calf. They bowed down to it, slaughtered sacrifices to it, and said, these are your gods of Israel who have brought you up from the land of Egypt. So bit of information number one. God tells Moses, very fascinating, God tells Moses, your nation has sinned. Let me just mute some people here. So, now who's Moses' nation? It was almost like a, a statement, a, 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 a direct not an attack, because God doesn't attack, but a, a very clear message from God that the nation that is sinning right now, that created this catastrophe, this spiritual meltdown with the sin of the golden calf, is Moses' nation. Who are they? The Erev Rav, the riffraff. When the Jews were leaving Egypt, there were people that wanted to join the Jewish people. They said, oh, we want to join you guys. We want to convert to Judaism. It was very nice except the circumstances in which that conversion took place were totally erroneous. They wanted to join the Jewish people because why not join a, a group of people that are getting freed from exile by an incredible God, getting a splitting of the sea, they're getting all this miraculous stuff. They said, they? let's cash in, let's join the Jews. And Moses, being the heartfelt shepherd that he was, he said, yeah, we'll take you along. So God referred to those people, the riffraff, the Erev as Moses' nation, they ain't my nation. They're not the Jewish people. You decided, as Rashi quotes from the Talmud, you never consulted with me, Moses, when you decided to bring these people aboard. You said it's a good idea to have more converts, and here we are. Right? The Erevrab, the Riffrab, ended up being the primary source of influence as it relates to the golden calf. So God tells Moses, get off the mountain, right? go down. By the way, get off the mountain. Your 40 days are up. Go down. Look what your people have done. And when he said your people, he wasn't just referring to the Jews. He was referring to the riffraff who had Moses himself had brought to the Jewish people. And by the way, the word lech raid, go down, doesn't just mean go down the mountain. It means a spiritual descent. You are now being demoted. Moses had a demotion. He had a, mo a moment where he's being lowered from his previous status because of what the people he brought on board did. That's Information piece number one. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit to page 534. And I'm going to give you information bit number two. And so Moses now is trying to reconcile the Jewish people's relationship with Hashem. So he breaks the tablets. What does he do with the actual golden calf? Hebrew school teachers never told you what they did with the golden calf. Did they sell it on eBay? Did they give it to the Ishmaelites? What in the world did they do with this molten calf that the Jewish people created with all this type of witchcraft and, 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 and all this uh, occult type of stuff? What did they do with the calf? Actually, it's a biblical verse. On page 535, verse 20, it says, he took the calf, 
that they had made, burned it in a fire, ground it to fine powder, scattered it upon the surface of the water, and gave it to the children of Israel to drink. They gave them a drink. You know what you're going to drink? Some powder water, right, with electrolytes, special powder water that comes from the actual molten calf that was melted to the ground and turned into powder. Pass me the Gutnik Chumash there. I want to read what in the actual Hebrew, what Rashi says. I don't have it in front of me. It's fascinating because this is basic, basic Judaism 101. So they, if Moses creates this drink, and Rashi says, let me just pull it up here. When I say pull it up, I don't mean on Google. I'm just using a Chumash. One second. Fascinating. So Rashi says, that golden place. And golden flakes with powder, golden powder. And here we go. So it says they, that he gave it to the Jewish people to drink. So here's very interesting. Rashi says as follows. You know, in the laws of Judaism, we read about a soita. A soita woman is a woman who is accused with witnesses that she secluded with a man that she was warned by her husband not to seclude with. And she did it anyhow. And now she is taken to the Temple Mount. And there's a whole process where she's given a special drink that had God's name erased in it. And if indeed it is true that she's an adulterer, her stomach becomes um, blown up and she has a very miserable death for that adultery that she committed. And by the way, if her husband committed adultery, the same thing happens to him in the process. And what's, that, that obviously was a rare occasion. But if a woman was not only warned but also went, well, witnesses watched her go and seclude with another man. She's a saita, and there's a process. And, and thank God, God made a plan that if this woman indeed did not commit adultery, she is blessed in incredible ways, that she has easy childbirth, and there's incredible amount of blessing. But if she did sin with adultery, the punishment is pretty fierce. So over here, there was a form of adultery, right? We are married to God. We are the bride. God is the groom. We got married at Sinai. 40 days after Moses goes up to the mountain, 40 days after the wedding, we commit adultery. We go and we dance with another husband. Who's the husband? The golden calf. So Moses takes the, the golden calf. He takes the source of the adultery. He takes the adulterous husband. He grinds him to the ground and he creates a drink. Just like a soda woman had a special drink. This woman, these people, the Jewish people, the bride are also good. Every single Jew is going to drink from this drink. And one of three things are going to happen to the Jews who actually sin with the golden calf. Rashi says this. It's not even like we haven't even got to the juicy Hasidus and mysticism. This is just basic Judaism. What happens is there were three death penalties incurred by the people who sinned with the golden calf. The people that were warned, don't sin with idolatry. Let's say their fellow Jews said, hey, my dear brother, don't do that. My dear sister, don't do that. It's a golden calf. It's idolatry. If they were warned and there were witnesses that saw them dancing around the golden calf, they get punished beside it. They get punished by beheading. Beheading was one of the four ways that people were, were put to death in a Jewish bezdom by the Sanhedrin. And in Irhani Dachas, a city that was full of people that were convinced, where when a majority of the city joins together to serve, to serve idols, it's called an Irhani Dachas, and they are put to death, unlike an individual who does an idolatry, which gets stoned to death. Again, if there's witnesses and warning, if it's a group, when there's group think as far as idolatry, it's beheading. So the ones that were warned and had witnesses, they got beheaded. 
We'll talk about when they got beheaded in a moment. Those that had witnesses, but there was no warning. I saw the guy serving idols, but there was no actual verbal warning. Hey, don't do that. And if you do that, you're going to get punished. Those people were punished by plague. We read later in the Torah portion, there was a plague and people just died. Like a, like a, there was a pandemic, but a unique godly pandemic that was singled out to the people that served idolatry, served the golden calf, but with only with witnesses, but no warning. What if there was no warning and there was no witnesses? Right? Maybe you snuck in a little serving to the, to, to the golden calf, but no one happened to be looking at the time. No one warned you. There was no witnesses. We can't put you to death with a beheading. We can't do that as human beings. We don't know what happened there. That's behidroikon. That's where their belly becomes inflated, and there's this ailment that kills them, which happens when they drink the water. So when they drank the water, if you were from remnants of Jews who were not beheaded, who, were not, who didn't die from the magefa, from the, from the plague, from the pandemic, but you happen to be a sinner with idolatry, with the golden calf, you're going to die when you drink that water that Moses made with, the, with the, the powdered water that he made from the actual golden calf. So first of all, it's a fascinating Talmudic teaching from the Medrash. It's also fascinating because later we read about these other, in the Parsha, we read that there was, that the Levites were asked to go kill the Jews that didn't, be, like the ones that sinned with the golden calf. Who are they killing? If they died with the plague, who's being killed? And what's the water all about? But now Rashi gives us the order. There were some that died like this because they had witnesses and warning. And Judaism takes witnesses and warning very seriously. There were others that there was no warning, but there were witnesses. And so they had a certain God had to take care of it. Magefa was a plague. And then there were the ones who there was no witnesses, no warning. And for them, it was a special drink that gave them this belly ailment similar to the woman who commits adultery. That's bit of information number two. Still with me? Good. I hope so. You know, you don't really have to answer that for Um Then we get the bit of information number three. If you look at verse 28, which is on page 537. So... And I'll read it in the English, then the Hebrew, you'll understand what I'm trying to emphasize. So it says, the sons of Levi followed Moses' word. On that day, some 3,000 men fell from among the people. So in Hebrew, it's Vayasu b'nei Levi kidvar Moshe. The sons of Levi did as Moses asked. Vayipol min ha'am. From the nation, not from Moses' nation, not from Amcha, but ha'am. From the people as a whole, 3,000 people. Then if you look at verse 30. Four, I'm um, sorry, if you look at verse 35, it says, then God struck the people with a plague because they had made the calf which Aaron brought about. So those are the ones that died by plague. And what does it say? It says, um, the people, right? When it came to drinking the water, it doesn't say the people, it doesn't say the nation. It says, Vayash B'nai Yisrael, that he gave the drink to B'nai Yisrael, the sons of Israel. Now, why by the plague and by the beheading does it say the nation, the people? And when it comes to the, um, the drink, which was the soda process, where they died with that belly ailment, does it say B'nai Yisrael specifically? Not the nation, not the people, but the sons of Israel. Bit of information number four. If you look at verse 38... I'm sorry, verse 34, right here in front of us. Verse 34. Now go and lead the people to the place which I told you about. My angel and not I will go before you. So God tells Moses, okay, we got this reconciliation process done. All the people that misbehave are going to die. 
And then it says, go and lead the people. Again, what does it say? The people. And if you look three verses further, chapter 33, verse 1, right there on page 537, God spoke to Moses, go up from here, you and the people you have brought up from the land of Egypt. First of all, it's repetitive. Three verses ago, you said, go lead the people. Now you say, go up from here with the people. What's up with that? Leich nechei, leich alei. Go lead them, go up with them. And when it talks about the them, the first time it says, I'm the people. The second time it says, you and the people. And Rashi says, but it doesn't say, it doesn't say your people, it says the people. So what's the double language, first of all? Is Moses leading them or taking them up? Which one? And why say it twice? God's telling Moses, go, you'll lead them. So lead them. Why does it have to say, take them up and lead them? And number two, what's the difference in the nation, right? And the, and the, and the one it says, es ha'am, the nation. And then it says, atav ha'am. And Rashi has to warn us, by the way, it's not your nation, Moses. It's the nation as a whole. By the way, it's all going to come together. What did the what did Paul Harvey used to say? Now you know the rest of the story, right? Now you know the rest of the story. Or as they said, some I'm not going to say where because then people will know too much about me. But as they used to say somewhere, I love it when a plan comes together. So tonight we're going to see how a plan comes together. So here's the fifth bit of information, and then I'm going to reconcile all of them. And that's not from the parsha; it's from the haftorah. Because when we read the Haftorah from the books of the prophets, it's always connected to the Torah portion. That's why we read it on the same week. And this week, it's my brother Yochanan, my older brother's um, Bar Mitzvah Parsha. And he read the Haftorah. It's from the Book of Kings. And actually, I knew his Haftorah for his Bar Mitzvah the same time he did because he practiced so often that I would walk around the house repeating his Haftorah. So the story of Elijah on Mount, Mount Carmel, the story of Elio, the prophet on Har HaKarmel, when the prophets of Baal were seducing and convincing so many thousands of Jews to sin the idolatry of Baal. And Elio said, enough is enough, we have to have a showdown. And to give them credit, back then, the idolaters of Baal were open to having a showdown. Let's have this. They were so sure about their idolatry, they were willing to go have a public, um, what do they call it, powwow. Right? That's what they call it on the reservations, a powwow. They were going to have a public powwow at Mount Carmel to figure out if God is in charge or the Baal idolatry is in charge. And this is all being done with Jews. King Achal, a.k.a. Ahab, in the Book of Kings, the husband of crazy lady Queen Izebel, Jezebel. So Achav and Izebel were the leaders of, they were the Jewish king and queen, and they were obviously supportive of the idolatrous Baal. So now they're having a showdown. And it comes to the showdown, each take a cow, and they're going to have an offering on an altar. And we're going to see if God's going to send the fire to the idolatrous altar or to the Baal altar, or to the godly altar that Elijah put up. And of course, the story is in the book of Kings that they put someone under the altar that was going to light the fire, except the snake killed him. So when they said, oh, Baal, give us your fire, there was no fire. And the guy that was under there was supposed to light the fire. It was dead already, so it didn't work. When it came to the godly altar, they poured water there. Eliel didn't care because he knew if Hashem shows it, it's going to come straight from heaven. And indeed, a fire came. And the Jewish people screamed those famous words at that time. Hashem, who God is our Lord. That's what we say in Yom Kippur at the final moments of Nila. That's in this week's Haftorah. But there's a very interesting medrash about this. Fascinating stuff. The medrash says, let me just pull it up here. Oh, so gishmak. The medrash says, 
that when the cow was being led to the Baal's altar, right, the idolatrous altar, the cow was being led to the altar, the cow said to Elijah, right, now me and you, I hope, don't speak cow language, although Rachel's pretty close, um, but generally most of us don't speak cow language, but many righteous people have had a shprach, King David, King Solomon, they were able to speak a language with cows, whether that means verbally or divi you know, divinely, but either way, Elijah is watching the cow being led to the Baal altar, to the idolatrous altar, and the cow says to Elijah, um, how is it that your cow is going to sanctify God's name on the altar of God? Why did I, the cow says, why did I merit to to anger my creator? Why am I going on the altar of Baal? Why was I chosen for this horrible job of being a representative of the Baal on the idolatrous altar? So what does Elijah respond? Very fascinating. Elijah tells the cow, Just like the cow that's with me, Elijah said, is going to sanctify God's name. The same thing you are going to bring sanctification to God's name. He tells the cow of the Baal. Now we get it. We get what Elijah was trying to say. What he was trying to say is that you're going to bring you're going to bring sanctification by the fact that your offering will never happen. The fire will never come down onto you. And therefore, people will see that idolatry is false. But how could Elijah say that it's equal? Just like I'm bringing sanctification, you're bringing, you're bringing sanctification by actively being burned on an altar for God. I'm, being, I'm bringing sanctification, you're telling me, by not being burned on an altar for God. My, my lack of doing anything is going to be the sanctification. How could you compare that to the active sacrifice of Elijah's cow that was going to be burned on the altar for God? So we need to understand why. You think we're ready for some explanations? Or I should keep going with pieces of we are. Linda says we are, so we're going to go for it. I'm telling you that... I wish, the only thing I wish out of all of this, that I was at that actual, those three Fabrengans where the Rebbe discussed this, because two of them, I believe, were on Shabbos. Well, two of them were on Shabbos, one of them was on Yontav, which means we don't have any recordings. Many of the weekday talks of the Rebbe are recorded, and when you hear the Rebbe talk, say it in, in his tone, in his style, it, it, it's sweet from, from like, like it, it's sweet like sugar. Sweet like jelly bellies, not, not the fake sugar, not stevia, it's like the real sugar, except it's much better for you. So let's talk about the Erev Rav for a moment, the riffraff, that God was upset about Moshe, right? Moses comes down the mountain, and he needs, to, he needs to bring sanity back to the people, stability. There's total chaos, pandemonium. There's idolatry, there's adultery, there's murder, there's, there's the regular Jews who were enslaved in Egypt, and now they're free, right? They only got freed a few months ago, so they're in total even their state of mind, right? They got a Torah in 50 days and they got a splitting of the sea and godly revelation. And now they were convinced by some troublemakers to come that Moses is not going to come down the mountain that he was supposed to come already, even though it wasn't true. And there's total chaos in the camp. So it comes time to punish those that were directly involved in the sinning. And there's two groups of people here. There's the regular Jews, the Jews that are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Rachel, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, the original Jews. And then there's this group of people, Moses' people, the, one that he, the ones that he decided to bring along without consulting with God, which resulted in trouble. 
So when it comes time to give those that needed to be beheaded and those that needed to die with a plague, in other words, those that had witnesses and warning and those that had witnesses without warning, everyone was all, it was all inclusive. That's why it says the nation. It doesn't say Amcha, your nation. It says the nation. Because every single part of this nation, including the newbies, the, the Erev Rav who have joined the people, were all punished equally. Because when there's witnesses and there's warning, or there's witnesses without warning, everyone is equal. What do you do when it says, that's why by the beheading and by the plague, it says, Ha'am, the nation, because it was everybody, riffraff, regular Jews, they all got the same punishment. But when it comes to the drinking of the water, it says, Vayashk B'nai Yisrael, he only gave the water to drink to the Jews. And that any of the riffraff that did not have warning and did not have witnesses, they didn't get the drink from the drink. Now, why? Why suddenly when it comes to the, the, to the people that did not have warning and there were no witnesses, are we treating them differently? So the Medrash actually says something fascinating. Imagine a newlywed. Imagine a, a couple gets married and the first week after the wedding or two weeks after the wedding, the husband says, listen, I got to go on an emergency business trip. Except the Medrash doesn't use a husband. It uses a king who gets married to a, a queen. And now he has to leave town and he comes back from town because he hears that the, the maidservants in the house Together with the queen, bad news is coming out of the palace. There's a lot of inappropriateness going on. So he comes back, right? Who's he upset at? The maidservants? What are you going to do? Break the marriage? I'm not married to you. I'm just a maidservant. So God comes after si Moses comes down from Sinai. There's two groups of people. There's the maidservants, which are, are the, the shvachas. The maidservants here are considered the Arab Rav, the riffraff. The Jewish people are the bride. I married you. I didn't marry the riffraff. I married you. What are you doing with the golden calf? So when it's something where there's witnesses and warnings, okay, we can lump them all together. But if there's no witnesses and no warning, who do you think the king is most concerned about? Do you think he's concerned about the maidservants in the palace or the, or the queen? It's the queen, his, his beloved, the one he married a few weeks ago and now betrayed him, or at least he thinks betrayed him. I'm not going to give the water to drink to the heir of Rav. What do I care about the heir of Rob? Sure, they made trouble. We'll kill them. But I'm going to spend all my time now giving them the water to test if they're worthy or not of being my bride. Worthy or not of being my bride? You're not my bride. You're a maidservant in the palace. I'm a gazunt. Have a good day. So when you make trouble and I can prove it, I'll get rid of you because I don't need you. But when I actually have to test who's worthy of a relationship with me, that is not going to be random. That is going to be specific to the one that I'm supposed to marry. Now, take that in mind. Right, so Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses comes down the mountain. He only drink gives that water, the special water with the with the powder to the Jews. So, in a sense, the Erev Rav had a better survival rate. Now, not in numbers, but but based on those who sinned, in fact, they were orchestrating the sin. They had a better survival rate. Why would that be? I get it. They're maidservants. But don't you just want to get rid of all this Arab rob and get rid of them? Isn't it easy for just to get rid of these troublemakers? They're Moses' nation. He brought them on board without permission. He never consulted with Hashem. Get rid of them. Says the Rebbe in this talk, something that is genuinely mind-blowing. And I'll say it in two, it's, it, it's, two, it's a two-tier. Number one, we know that when the Jewish people back in last week's Torah portion, the week before, when they were bringing all their donations to the tabernacle to build the tabernacle, they had to bring it to Moses specifically. Why to Moses specifically? Because 
They needed a special sanctification and blessing that comes through going into Moses' end. And that's why everything that was donated to the tabernacle had eternity to it. If Moshe touched it, it was Nitzchi, it was forever. That's why even when the temple was built by King Solomon, a thousand years later, they buried the tabernacle. It wasn't thrown away. It was left near the temple mount and, and saved for all eternity. It's like, okay, time's up. Goodbye. We don't need you anymore. Every vessel, every facet of the tabernacle of the Mishkan remained for all eternity. So number one, God did not want to annihilate every single one of the Erev Rav if he would have killed every single one of the riffraff, including the remaining ones that did not have witnesses and did not have warning. That means something that Moses produced human beings that Moses made his, Moses brought them on board, there would be no remembrance of them forever. They would be totally eradicated. It would be a thing that Moses created, brought to life, and a few months later, totally gone. And that doesn't make sense because Moshe represents Nitzchius. He represents eternity. So number one, God wanted to ensure that these Erev Rav, these riffraff will stick around because they represent Moses' eternity. They are Moses' production. But it takes on a much deeper level than just that. And that is as follows. The Erev Rav represented Shuvah. What do I mean by that? The ones that remained, they got fully back on board. They became fully devoted Jews. And what that did for eternity is a reminder to the world that even people who never belonged being there in the first place, they were just brought on by Moses, even people who seduced an entire nation to go sin a molten calf, they too have redemption. There is no such thing. It is a non-Jewish idea that, I don't want to, I'm going to say this anyhow, its sources are not in the Jewish faith. They are in faiths that are outside of Judaism, it is false, it is un-Jewish, ungodly to think that someone loses any chance for all eternity. Had all of the riffraff died during the golden calf, the message that it would give would be that there is no redemptive ability for people under certain circumstances. And by God leaving one group of them alive, which technically didn't have warning and didn't have Witnesses, but the fact that they were alive to tell the tale and that they transformed their life is the ultimate transformation that we seek. By the way, there's a message that says that in general, why did God allow for the sin of the golden calf? Forget about the Erev Rav, the Rif Rav. Why did God allow for the sin of the golden calf in the first place? The message says, It opened the door for Bali Tshuva for a person to return to God. There is no such thing as a closed door, right? If there was never a sin of the golden calf, where would we get the impetus, the excitement to ever return to God to fix our mistake? We can always say, wow, hey, listen, my sin was not as bad as the golden calf. Right? So it opened up the door for tshuva. And here, taking it a step, a step deeper, the Erev Rav surviving is not just a representative of Moses' eternity. It's a representative of the ability of the worst of the worst in humanity to turn things around. We should never buy into that philosophy that says, oh my gosh, that person is the eternal hell. That person is the eternal hell. Turn your life around. Allow God into your life. Change is not only possible, but it's probable. And the Erev Rav proved that if they can turn around, anyone can turn around. And that's, it's a fascinating thing about Shuba because 
What happens when people are, let's say they grow up totally secular, super duper fundamentalist secular. I like using the same terms the New York Times uses about Orthodox Jews, about secular people, right? Super stupendous fundamentalist Orthodox secular people, right? Imagine those super duper secular people. They say to themselves, you want me to change my life? I've been eating bacon for 38 years. I've been eating cheeseburgers for 47 years. I haven't done Shabbos. I haven't done Yom Tif. I don't know what Jim Kippur is. And now you want me to become more connected to God and turn my life around and become on board with 613 beautiful mitzvahs of the Torah? The answer is yes. You say, Rabbi, I can't do that. Yes, you can. I didn't say you should do it overnight. I didn't say you'll ever accomplish everything you want to accomplish. But the idea that you can't is absolutely false. How do we know that? Look at the sin of the golden calf. If you could sin with a golden calf, whether you're the Jews who sin with the golden calf, and you have to go through the three-pronged process of the, the, the sinners went beheading, uh, at, you know, at the, the, the plague, and then, and, then, uh, and then the waters. Or you're the Arab rabbi. You only had the beheading and the plague, but you didn't have the waters. But you were able to turn yourself around. That is the epitome of how we recognize godliness, even in the most, of, in, in the most wicked and evil aspects of creation. There's something in Hasidic terminology and, and Kabbalistic terminology called Shalish Klippas Atmeus, the three impure klipot, the three, the three layers of total impurity. No one would ever say that the sin of the golden calf wasn't the epitome of the three layers of utter impurity, and yet it turned around. It created goodness, right? Because there's two ways to deal with darkness. One way is to say, we just have to push, push, push the darkness away. We'll fight it off, which has value. At certain times in our life, the only way to deal with that is to recognize or to convince ourselves that darkness isn't really a foe, as strong of a foe as it seems, and we'll knock it out of the park. But the other way is to take it even a step deeper and to transform that negativity into good. How do you transform the negativity into good? By revealing that the negativity in the first place is sustained. It's life force. It's vitality is directly from God. And the minute you reveal that by transforming the experience and making it part of the the repentance return process, making it part of a godly experience and therefore revealing how that too is part of the godly experience, you've created the ultimate transformation. What can be a better proof of that type of transformation than the riffraff who seduced and convinced the Jews to sin a golden calf and yet they remained alive, turned their life around and became the representatives of what tshuva looks like. If they can do it, revealing that not only the mistakes that we made in our life are fixable, but the, even the deliberate sins that we've done, like the Talmud says, there's doinus. A person deliberately goes and eats a ham sandwich on Yom Kippur. And later, two years later, they somehow they get inspired by the Kotel and they turn their life around. Now, when they turn their life around, because they were sustained by that ham sandwich on Yom Kippur, they have the ability to transform their existence, their bloodline their blood force, their life force. And when they do that transformation, it uplifts and transforms the ham sandwich on Yom Kippur too to being, a rec to recognize that that too is part of a godly creation. When you do that, that's when the plan comes together. That's why in one verse it says, Leich nechei, go lead the people. The second verse says, go take the people up, you and the people. Who's he talking about? Why would you have two verses that seem repetitive? The answer is it's two different groups of people. The first verse that says, go lead the people is talking about the regular Jews. The second verse that says, go take them up. The nation that you took out of Egypt, right? Which nation? Moses' nation. 
Moses, through his unique way of dealing with the riffraff, was able to elevate them, alay, not nechay, not lead them, but alay, elevate them, lift them up, because he's lifting them up to a new spiritual dimension, a dimension in which not only are we fighting darkness, so many people spend their life fighting darkness on Twitter, on YouTube, the whole day they're busy with trying to convince the world that they're right and everyone else is wrong, and even when they are right, the fact that you're spending so much time fighting darkness, you're giving darkness too much time and too much validity. A much better way to do it is transform the, the negativity. And then, right, what did they Lincoln say? I'd rather have you in my tent uh, looking outward instead of outside looking in. He said it a little differently. You can Google it later. Uh, I'm not going to say that on camera. But do you want the negative forces to be a, another dimension in the world that reveals godliness, that shows the world that God is truly the creator of everything, not just of goodness, not just of positivity, but even negativity and evil and darkness is created by God? And once we, we could reveal their true sustainability, their true life force, it's, it's unbelievable what that does. Think of it. Think of that moment in your life what you thought was so negative, and then you were able to utilize it for something so positive, how much more positive that is with just a regular positive experience. Or think of something dark that turned into something so light, how much brighter it is than just a regular light, because it came from a place of darkness. You're revealing its true essence, which is God, the spirit of Hashem, Ruach Elikim, boy, the spirit of God floats right above it, and all you got to do is reveal that. Which brings us straight to the Haftorah, in case you thought I forgot about point number five. What was the conversation with Elijah and the cow? Elijah tells the cow, you're going to bring sanctification to God's name by not being offered to the Baal, to the idolatry, as much as I am when I'm going to have my cow sanctified to God on the altar of God. How could you say they're equal? Some would say, not only are they equal, but the, the cow on the idolatrous altar of Baal had something even stronger than Elijah's cow on the altar of God. Why? Because what Elijah was telling the cow is you don't understand. In God's world, the way it works is that if you really want to reveal godliness to its core, you don't do that in a spiritual cocoon. You don't do that, Taya likes when I use the word cocoon. You don't do that in a spiritual ghetto. That's not a novelty. Go bring godliness. Go reveal godliness in the spaces that seem impossible. Right? My colleague of blessed memory, Rabbi Gabi and Rifki Altsberg, him and his wife, who were the Rebbe Shluchim in Mumbai, India. You know what it means to be a shliach, a representative for godliness in India? A place that's full of idolatry from when you walk, when you, from the minute you land in New Delhi or Bombay or Mumbai, it's one big statue for Hinduism and Buddhism and Kalaminim and Kalazedim. And yet right there in the source of all idolatry, I'm going to bring B'Shem Hashem I'm going to call the name of God. And I'm going to reveal how in every facet of creation, even the darkest facets of creation, it's sustained by God. And without God wanting that negativity to exist, it wouldn't. And the reason God wants it to exist is that we should overcome it and not, not get seduced by it and therefore reveal that that too is part of God's plan and God's revelation. So Elijah's message to the cow is a message that resonates so deeply with us. Sometimes we think we're above dealing with the dark world. I don't want to deal with the dark world. I want to go to a nice hut 
in Paradise Valley where there's no Wi-Fi and I don't want to deal with the world. By the way, there's many days that I'm with you. I don't want to deal with the world. It's too dark. Right? You try, you try, you try to permeate the world with godliness, and then they wake up one morning and some genius in San Francisco came out with a new way to, to, to mess up the world and bring immorality. You thought you finally got through with the one, and they came up with another. You're trying to bring Mashiach, you're trying to reveal the ultimate revelation of godliness, and every day they wake up and more darkness and more darkness, but actually that's a beautiful part of the process. You know what, because eventually they're going to run out of dark ideas. And every time they bring one up, we reveal how that too can be part of the godly process of revealing how its entire purpose is just for us to withstand it and transform it and, re and realize that that too is created by God in order for us to be better human beings by being more, have more self-control and more spiritually impactful. So the message of the story, other than that, the basic message, which is that there's no such thing as too far gone. That's not a Jewish concept. There's no one that is, um, there's no one that redemption isn't possible for. But there's more than that. It's when we wake up every morning and we want to just go into, maybe not an emotional or mental, but a spiritual cocoon. I don't want to deal with anyone that's going to try to distract me or disturb me from my godly service. I don't want to deal with anyone that represents evil. By the way, people tell that to me sometimes as a rabbi. I can't believe you dealt with that one. Do you know that he's a... Uh, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to say a Jew that eats on Yom Kippur. Do you know that he's a, a Jew that doesn't believe in God? Those are the ones I love most. The challenge is greater. The fire in their belly is stronger. They're trying to fight back against their Judaism, and I have the opportunity to ruin it for them. I'm like the spiritual fire extinguisher. So for most people, I'm trying to light the fire, but there's a whole segment I'm trying to extinguish the negative fire, and that's just as much fun. That's what Elijah was telling the cow. That's what Moshe was saying when he allowed for the riffraff not to drink from the water because they needed to survive to show the world that redemption and the recognition of the good that comes from dark, the light that comes from dark is always possible. And if you don't appreciate what I just shared tonight from the Rebbe, then we have to give you spiritual plastic surgery to your heart and soul, to give you a chassidish neshama, to give you a chassidic soul that you can understand the beauty of what just went down. We took the most sinful, wrong, evil moment in Jewish history and turned it into the most incredible life lesson and how we can transform this world into being a place that Mendel would call incredible, but it would actually live up to the statement. Mendel thinks everything's incredible, but he's actually going to think that this, the world... Because my classes are better than yours. This is... This is... Um, it's okay. It's okay to still keep Okay, master. it's being recorded for the whole world, and so soon I'm going to give you a last name, so everyone should know who it is, too. Um... <laughs> until we realize that the world is truly an incredible, you know, beacon of light. It's a place that allows for basking in the divine glory. And when you see the wickedness, don't surrender, don't get into fight mode, say to yourself, how am I gonna prove to the world that this too is part of the messianic process of revealing goodness, revealing light, revealing godliness, and when we do, we will enter a world with no more idolatry, no more adultery, and no more murder. 
None of that. No more riffraffs that make trouble, just riffraffs that turn their life around. With the coming of Moshiach Tzedkenu, may be speedily in our days. Amen. I'm going to stop the recording and then I'll, I'll open up Zoom.